listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Before the colonialists imposed national boundaries, the kings of Laos and Vietnam reached an agreement on how to collect taxes from people in the border areas of their respective domains. The question was, how could they know who belonged to which kingdom? How could they determine citizenship? And this is what they came up with. Those who ate short-grained rice, built their houses on stilts, and decorated them with Indian-style serpents were considered Laotians. And on the other hand, those who ate long-grained rice built their houses on the ground, and decorated them with Chinese-style dragons, were considered Vietnamese. The exact location of a person's house is not what determined which kingdom they belonged to. Where a person's house was built, the geography did not determine their citizenship. Instead, each person proved the kingdom to which they belonged by embracing and exhibiting that kingdom's cultural values. Now, over the past few years, we have seen a significant rise in nationalism around the globe. News coverage of nationalism has been global, identifying this ideology at work in U.S. elections, the U.K.'s departure from the European Union, and in government policies in the Philippines, China, and South Africa. Observers of world politics have identified nationalist policies at work by the Japanese and Indian prime ministers, the Turkish president, and in extremist parties in Italian, German, and Austrian elections. Nationalism is an exclusionary ideology that draws hard cultural lines regarding who is in and who is out, whose concerns and voices should be heard, and whose concerns and voices should be silenced. Individuals and groups who don't conform to the nationalists' preferred cultural template, those who challenge triumphalist narratives of a country and seek to expose the true and shameful and ugly things about the history of a country are identified as enemies of the state and those who are threatening the way of life of that particular nation. In the absence of moral authority, nationalists can only establish themselves by force. And scholars are almost unanimous that nationalist governments tend to become authoritarian and oppressive places. But here's the deal. The Lord has sent his church into the world, into the thick of many different kinds of nationalist contexts around the globe with the call to bear witness to a different kind of kingdom with a different kind of citizenship. Now, we know people do live in particular neighborhoods, in particular cities and towns, in particular countries and territories. However, for Christians, 
the exact location of our homes is not what determines our truest citizenship. Geography doesn't determine the kingdom to which we belong. In the church, we are to see ourselves as citizens of heaven. We are to embrace and exhibit the cultural values of the kingdom. For us, It's not about whether we feast on long grain or short grain rice. It's about whether we feast on Christ by faith. It's not about whether our house is built on stilts or on the ground, but whether we are built upon the rock. For us, belonging is not about the decor of our houses, but the ethical decor of our lives. We are citizens of the kingdom. And as citizens of the kingdom... We're called to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. In other words, our citizenship, our higher citizenship, our truer citizenship will look like a particular way of dealing with money and possessions. It will look like a particular set of desires and loves. It will look like a particular way of living in relationships. Our citizenship will lead to a virtuous love for our place that is inclusionary, but also truthful and committed to the just and the right and the good and the beautiful for our place. So today, this 4th of July Sunday, of all the years it could have landed on Sunday, this year it's ironic. I I don't know what the word is, but... This 4th of July Sunday, instead of conflating our faith and our American culture, we are going to focus on the distinctives of our kingdom citizenship. And our two points for this morning are our citizenship and our fellowship. So let's look at our first point where we consider our citizenship. Now, if you look at the text that was read for us this morning, verse 27 begins with an emphasis, right? It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It is to say, above all things and before all things, do this thing. But look at what Paul calls them to do above all things and before everything else. The text says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this is a compact statement that needs some development in order for us to understand it. Because the main verb that carries this passage, this entire section, is translated, let your manner of life be. That's the main verb. However, there are some nuances that I want to bring out to help us understand more clearly what Paul is saying. The verb is palatueste. Does this sound like anything? Politueste? It's a political charged word. It's a politically charged word in the time. And it has some different shades of meaning that, that they don't come through in our translation here. Politueste was a political term that carried the notion of living as citizens. Living as citizens. Now here's the deal. Philippi was a Roman colony. Okay, And it was a leading city in the province of Macedonia. And they had possession of what was known as the Italic Rite, which meant that they had the rights of Roman citizenship. Even though they were a military colony, they had the rights 
of citizenship as Romans. It meant that though they were far from home, they enjoyed the same rights and privileges as if they were part of Italian soil. And this was a status in which the Philippian people took great pride and great delight. It was a status that deeply shaped the way that they lived. Essentially, here's what was going on. The Roman Empire was spreading around the world and they were planting cities all around the world to spread the rule of the kingdom of Rome, the empire, and the Roman way of life. That's, that's what was happening in Rome. They were conquering the world, planting cities, and spreading the culture of Rome and the Roman way of life. And Philippi was one of those cities that was planted. It was an outpost of, of the Roman Empire. Philippi was supposed to be a little bit of Rome, a long way from home. Only, uh, it would only happen if Philippi lived like citizens of Rome. Now here's the deal. The Philippians were expected to align their lives according to Roman cultural orthodoxy, okay? According to Roman values, according to Roman laws, whether those laws were just or unjust. Now, let's go back and think about what Paul is doing here. What is Paul doing when he says that we are to let our lives be conducted in a manner that's worthy of the gospel? He is pulling on that reference for the Philippians. They knew what it meant to be citizens of Rome, but he's pulling on that same frame of reference and he expects them to fill this with a Christian framework. He's telling the Philippians, I know that you are a Roman colony with all the rights and privileges and duties that come with citizenship, but there is a greater truth that you must take into account. The kingdom of God is spreading all over the world. And the Lord is planting churches. He's planting his people all over the world to spread the rule of Christ and the kingdom way of life. And the only way this will happen is if you live like citizens. You must live in line with biblical orthodoxy rather than Roman orthodoxy. You must live according to kingdom values and kingdom law. And if your kingdom citizenship comes into conflict with your Roman citizenship, your loyalties must lie with God's kingdom. Rome looks at the nations as a people to be conquered and subdued. But you are to look at the nations as people to be redeemed, dignified, and familyfied. Rome squashes the weak, but you are to defend the weak and empower the weak and include the weak. Rome worships Caesar as Lord and Savior, but you are to worship Christ alone as Lord and Savior. Paul is contextualizing his message and his framing would have resonated with the Philippians because of their civic pride and political sensibilities. He was pastorally challenging them to dig deeper into their richer, more robust, more important citizenship. And if the Apostle Paul were to have an opportunity to comment on the Christian nationalism of our day, he may very well have stronger words for us. Christian nationalism 
idealizes a fusion of Christianity with American civic life. We've heard lots of talk of Christian nationalism. Many people who throw the term around don't really have a a helpful definition because it can be elusive. Nationalism itself is difficult to define. Okay, So there are many takes out there, but one of the things that we can observe is this conflation of Christian faith with American civic life. It uses the name of Christ for worldly political agendas, conflating loyalty to Christ with partisan loyalty. Christian nationalists proclaim that their political program is the political program for every true Christian, such that rejection of the political party is rejection of Jesus himself. This ideology treats the message of Jesus as a tool of partisan political propaganda, and it gives its adherents permission to avoid 101 Christianity by dehumanizing and othering their opponents. It subverts the Catholicity of the church. It subverts the confessional commitments of this church. Now, our confessional commitments are the Westminster Standards. And I want to read you just very shortly how the Westminster Standards talk about the church and the communion of saints. In chapter 25 on the church, section 2 says this. The visible church, which is, also, which is also Catholic and universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possible possibility of salvation. Section 3 says this, Unto this Catholic visible church, Christ has given the ministry, the oracles, and the ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world, and does by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. Now, this is what it says in the next chapter on the communion of saints. All saints that are united to Christ Jesus, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his grace, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and the outward man. Our confessional documents say that we are obliged to the good toward all the saints, whether they be American Indonesian, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Latino. That's our obligation. That's that's what our confessional documents say about the communion of the saints and the nature of the church. And the problem with Christian nationalism is that at its heart, Christian nationalism is not really about principles. It's about power. And in this way, it is idolatrous. And I can think of no more important reminder for American Christians on this 4th of July than this. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
This is the day in which we hear lots of talk about freedom. We hear statements of civic pride. And we see lots of people waving old glory. Thousands of people pour into our national mall to marvel at the stone monuments of America's founding fathers. But none of this should shape us like our kingdom citizenship. Because listen, American citizens can celebrate freedom of speech. But kingdom citizens can celebrate freedom from guilt, sin, fear, and death. American citizens can share their civic pride. But kingdom citizens celebrate the redeeming humility of Christ. American citizens might marvel at the stone monuments of the founding fathers. But kingdom citizens marvel that the heavenly father rolled the stone away in raising his son from the dead. America may have won the war with Britain, but Jesus won the war with sin, death, and the devil. Americans may be grateful for the stars and stripes, but kingdom citizens are grateful that by his stripes, we are healed. And we are to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ because Christ's manner of life actually created the gospel. The banner under which we rally is not old glory. It is the old rugged cross. And there is a big difference for God's church when we are rallying under the cross versus rallying under the flag. We must never conflate those two. We must never blend them together. We are citizens of heaven. And this reality is to most deeply mark our fellowship, which brings us to our next point, our fellowship. I want you to look at the text real quick, and I want you to see the connection that Paul creates between our citizenship and our fellowship. You see, after he exhorts us to, to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, it goes directly into standing firm in one spirit. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He flows right out of our kingdom citizenship into our fellowship, our, our union with one another. What we see is that Paul is suggesting that the purpose or the result, we have a clause here. It's a henna clause. When you see so that in the, in the text, it can either be purpose or result. Sometimes it can be both purpose and result. What is the purpose or result of living our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? The, the, the purpose or the result is oneness and witness. Do you see that in the text? It's in the text. It's oneness and it's witness. And we got to know that our witness requires oneness or else it is blunted or undermined altogether. And it seems very clear to me that the source of much of our disunity in the church is that we operate with in greater alignment to our American citizenship than we do to our kingdom citizenship. That's one of the, the chief sources of our disunity in the American church. That's one of the things that makes it difficult for us to get on the same page. We are more American than kingdom. Because here's the thing. We align with our American citizenship, 
And what does that look like? What do we cherish? Independence rather than interdependence. We cherish privacy, no one being in my business rather than intimacy. We cherish materialism and success that is measured by material means rather than generosity and, and maturity that is measured by your, your willingness to give, us, give yourself away for the benefit of others. What else do we see in American orthodoxies? This, this idea, it's, it's a myth, but the myth of the meritocracy where everyone gets what they worked for. Everyone gets what they deserved. And if you don't have anything, it's obvious that you didn't work for it or you weren't smart enough or you weren't, you weren't able to achieve enough. And that meritocratic spirit does not recognize injustice. It does not recognize the sins of the past that carry on into the future. Another thing that we see is a particular brand of freedom. It's a particular brand of freedom. It's not the same thing that the scriptures entail. Paul said that he was the Lord's free man. And at the same time, he called himself a bondservant of the Lord Jesus. He was free now to serve someone other than himself. He was free from the opinions of others who would try to steer him away from following Christ. He was free from that inner selfishness and that inner narcissism that made him always focused on himself and and what people were doing for him and how it affected him and his reputation. That's what he was free from and he was free for service. That's not the way we think about freedom in America. There are orthodoxies in our American culture that we have to be aware of and we have to resist because our oneness and our witness are at stake our oneness and our witness. But we also have political orthodoxies, don't we? When people wind up into a particular political party, they then adhere to the orthodoxy of that particular party. But here's the thing. Your life is not to be governed by progressive or conservative orthodoxies, but by Christian orthodoxy, which blasts every this-worldly political ideology. If we want to be a tightly knit, healthy community, then we must derive our ethics from the kingdom and, according to verse 29, be ready to suffer for his sake as a result of embracing our kingdom citizenship more deeply than our earthly citizenship. You see, you see the flow of the text? It, it makes sense because you go from conducting your life in a manner worthy of the gospel to oneness and witness, and then to the heat that you're going to have to catch, the suffering that you will have to endure for being true. Don't don't think that it's not going to come. It happens. People will try to shame us for our convictions and our ethical frameworks. People will try to bully us. People will try to denounce us. None of that is to deter us. We are citizens of the kingdom, and we are to be ready to not only believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. The way we love indiscriminately, the way we keep short accounts, how we uphold the human dignity of our opponents and enemies. You know, I just want to make this clear today. The scriptures teach us 
then anybody can love someone who loves them. What is distinctly Christian is an ethic of enemy love. And even when we disagree with people deeply, we must never allow ourselves to be dragged down to the point that we dehumanize them. Where we belittle them. Where we stoop in a way that does not line up with the gospel of Christ. Because think about it. The Lord had every reason to denounce us for all of the sin and the evil and the error that he found in us. But what does he do? He delights over us with singing. He, he speaks our name in defense in the, the true tabernacle that is made without hands. That's why he ever lives at the right hand of the Father today pleading your case. Satan is the one denouncing you, but he's the one speaking on your behalf. That's what the gospel says. Now, what does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? It means that the way you use your words to, toward those who are enemies, about those who are enemies, it's got to look different. Disagree by all means. There is place for righteous anger in this, in this life. But do not stoop to dehumanize your enemies. This week, I heard my friend Scott Sauls say that people can actually become grace Pharisees. You know what a Pharisee is, right? Like, like someone who is, who is legalistic and moralistic and holds you to a tight grid, and then if you don't hold to it, they heap shame upon you. Well, there are grace Pharisees, Scott says. When you, when you aren't gracious, like I'm gracious, then I'm going to blast you for not being gracious. I think we can also be justice Pharisees as well. You pick all of the things we care about, and there is a way of conducting your life where you actually undermine the thing you said you cared so much about. For example, it's not just to drag someone's na good name through the mud. You can disagree with them. <laughs> you, can, you can vehemently disagree with them. But it is not just to ruin their good name. That's what the ninth commandment suggests to us. What I'm saying in all this is that this is the different kingdom ethic under which we are to live. And that is to transform the way our lives are blended together in love and the impact of our witness in the world. When I have traveled abroad, I have learned that Americans really stick out. Anyone in here lived abroad for any time? Raise your hand. Is it true that Americans stick out? Yeah, we stick out. We stick, we stick out for all of our uniquely American sensibilities and all of our uniquely American characteristics. I mean, probably one of the dead giveaways uh, I've heard in certain countries is that we wear sneakers instead of regular shoes. There are lots of others, too. Some of those are that we only speak English, right? You've heard the old joke. What do you call someone who speaks more than three languages? A polyglot. What do you call someone who speaks one language? American, right? Like, like we stick out. But my hope and my prayer is that based upon our connection to our kingdom citizenship, we will stick out in a very different way. 
We will stick out for our grace and our love. We will stick out for our commitment to our principles that are merciful and gracious. We will stick out for our willingness to serve people other than ourselves. That we will stick out for our generosity. That we will stick out for our faithfulness to our place. We're against nationalism. There's a difference between being patriotic and being nationalistic. I think if I had to put it one way, I would say nationalism is when patriotism shoots up steroids and goes to the gym and it becomes something idolatrous and unhealthy. Okay, we, we have a theology of place. It's one of our core values. Love your place and its people and, its, and seek the welfare of its institutions, as Pastor Joel prayed earlier. That is all beautiful and necessary and healthy. And if we live out our kingdom citizenship, I believe that then we'll really see fireworks. You know what I'm saying? Then we'll see life, liberty, and the possession of happiness. So let us be the kind of community that sticks to our kingdom citizenship, that repents and believes every day, that seeks the Lord for his renewing grace so that we can be more closely aligned with our kingdom citizenship than our American citizenship. Amen? Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.